Okay, so this is our second of two lectures on chastity as a virtue. Um, as I think I was picking up from your facial expressions, you've done a lot of this stuff before in other courses. But I'm hoping we are just kind of, by putting it in the context of this course, making sure that the analysis of virtue is integral to what we're doing in sexual morality. Because the risk otherwise is we do sexual morality and we have a, a list of rules, a list of commandments, a list of obligations, but we don't have a way of living. And that's what virtue has as its focus. So let's just very briefly recap what I mapped out on Monday. So on Monday I was trying to trace out the path of the concupiscible appetite. That there's a yearning within us that wants to be satisfied in something. And how does that go wrong when it's not satisfied in what it's designed for? So that the human person has our natural inclinations, which mean we have the appetites within us, rational appetite in the will, the concupiscible appetite, the irascible appetite. Um, more specifically, then, we end up with the passions. And all of these get activated by various specific things we encounter, including specific people we encounter, thinking of chastity being you know, a personal virtue. And more basically, all of that is the trajectory of man seeking beatitude, happiness, that were made for fulfillment. And how does that map out in the virtues and vices? Um, ultimately, we are made for that union with God that is charity. And when we achieve that, we have that sharing in beatitude that is spiritual joy, that delight in possessing the ultimate good. It talks about how there are various, at a bodily level, pleasures um, that we engage with, that are being given to us, that are proper to us as bodily creatures. And that if we engage with these in virtues, then they are part of our ordering in charity. So I gave, in a sense, almost the mundane example of what St. Thomas calls the virtue of games or play, that we need relaxation, we need the rest of the soul, not just the rest of the body and sleep, and that pleasure is a rest for the soul, that there's a kind of a pacifying, a calming, a, ah, yes, when we get a, a bit of pleasure, that isn't just a physical thing, but at the level of the soul, I experience rest. I, I have that handful of M&Ms and I just feel something restful, a satisfaction. And if I have that in union with him, knowing it's come from him, in proper measure, as he wants me to have it in proper measure, then it's part of this order. And I can engage, St. Thomas says, anything that can be an object of physical pleasure can also be an object of spiritual delight. That I can engage with it in union with him, in relationship with him. So the M&Ms, I can engage with those intellectually and emotionally. So for me, M&Ms are part of my happy American childhood summer holidays. Yes. So there's not just a physical thing, there's a whole intellectual and emotional packaging. And if I engage with them knowing that they come from God, they're a gift from God, then these things that are physical pleasures become something even more. And that they give me a share in this spiritual delight that is a sharing in the divine beatitude. Then more particularly for our course, obviously chastity. Um, chastity being that virtue that is a part of temperance that moderates the sense of touch with respect um, to the pleasures related to sexual intercourse. 
we talked about um, how in every virtue there is two extremes, two ways we can do it wrong, um, excess or deficiency. Um, St. Thomas says that in the case of, you know, this, the, the mean for that varies where it is on that spectrum with different activities, varies also with different people. So the, the right measure of the frequency of sex and the engagement with that pleasure for a married man, or say a young married man, is very different to a 50-year-old celibate. Yeah? So that for me, the, as we said, the right measure is zero. Um, but that is a measure. So I need to engage with that pleasure, seeing it as something good, not as something evil, but knowing that for me, the right measure is zero. Okay, so we also mapped out how those that desire trajectory can go wrong. So in sloth, instead of looking at the divine good and rejoicing in it, I just look at it and just think, boy, that's a lot of hard work. Being a saint, that's a lot of hard work. And I feel sorrow in the face of the divine good. And we noticed also envy, a different type of spiritual sorrow, not looking at God, but looking at my neighbor. The possessions he has, I look at and I feel sorrow that he has those good things rather than rejoicing for him that he has them. Um, then, again, with respect to physical pleasures, there are lots we could map out, but just with respect to our course, the pleasures of touch, lust, and gluttony. So lust is when this inbuilt desire in us it is in itself good and proper, the desire for, uh, you know, the, the inclination towards sex, procreation. Um, this is just a natural inclination. It's a good thing. But when it goes wrong, and in particular, if I don't find my joy in God, I will go wandering after unlawful pleasures, as St. Thomas puts it. And the unlawful pleasures of lust are, as we see in human experience, one of the most common ways people wander. And we can wander by wandering to the wrong people and places so that I seek sex with a, someone who's married to somebody else. Or I seek it out of pleasure in context in some other form. And somebody with gluttony, the Pleasures of touch with, relates, with respect to food. Um, that food is a good thing, generally speaking. Um, you know, it, it's, not a, it's not a false good, but it's a good that's frequently out of measure. So all that is repetition of what we did on Monday. Can I do one little bit of something... Gluttony. So can we look on page 12? I just want to highlight to you the five ways St. Thomas says you can be gluttonous. Um, I just think particularly as a little kind of formation aside for seminarians, um, gluttony can be one of our, our big pitfalls, that we can kind of make a clear line with respect to celibacy, but then we give ourselves indulgences in other things. And food is one of the ways we can do that. So page five, just to note, um, so a few bullet points down, the five ways that Gregory the Great says gluttony tempts us. So most obviously seeking too much, and this is how we generally think of gluttony, quantity being too much. But in terms of priestly living, and I think, dare I say, for American priests in particular, um, we can seek food that is too fancy or too excessively tasty, that this is another form of gluttony. I don't just want food, I want fancy food, I want nice food, that the food here isn't good enough, that this is another way of being gluttonous, being 
You know, food has a function, it has a proper pleasure, but we can be overly fussy about it being nice food. Then seeking food that is too expensive. So, you know, American priests have more money than priests pretty much anywhere in the world, well, maybe not the Germans, but, um, <laughs> but that money, generally speaking, isn't a problem for an American priest, and the risk is that when you go out to eat, you go somewhere that's just too, too expensive to be proportionate to that simplicity of life that should be proper to us. And this is not gluttony in quantity, but I go somewhere that's too expensive. And maybe they give me some fancy little thing and, and the size of it is small on the fancy plate. But it's just too expensive. I shouldn't be as a priest going there. So expense, even when quantity isn't a problem, expense is another form of gluttony. Then um, leading us to eat at improper or excessive times or in a hasty manner. So again, in our Western culture, um, this thing of snacking all day long. I mean, look at me here, I brought a bag of M&Ms into the classroom without even really, it was on my way from one place to another. Um, this thing of thinking I have to always be eating, I have to always have food with me, I have to always have a drink with me, um, rather than there being a time and a place. That food is a thing, a proper thing, but not all the time. And then lastly, gluttony can lead us to eat in a manner that has, lacks proper manners and social consideration. So I can eat just thinking about my food and ignoring the people with me, or you know, lacking manners. Um, so the simple basic point is gluttony isn't just about quantity. It's about pursuing this desire for food, but in lots of different ways that are out of measure. Okay, let's move on to what we're gonna properly focus on today. So page 14 onwards in uh, the lecture notes. So I don't have as much material to kind of rush through today as I was trying to do on Monday. Um, so we should have time to discuss Grabowski's book um, later. But the key point I want us to focus on today isn't just the trajectory of pleasure and its proper integration in virtue, but how we grow in virtue. And with that, the difference between a virtue that integrates our passions and a virtue that's just self-control. So, page 14, growing in virtue. So point one, kind of stating the basic point, repetition causes growth in virtue. So what we call the natural virtues, that their acts by repetition habituate certain responses. So I do something and I habituate myself to have a certain response in a certain situation. And I do that by repeating the action again and again, and it trains, it habituates me. At a natural level, what would be called also the acquired virtues. Then we also have the supernatural virtues, or the infused virtues. And here the mechanism is also by repetition, but they're good actions each time I do them, remove the obstacles to grace infusing. And so more of the habit is infused. So whether the, it's a natural virtue by my effort, or whether it's an infused virtue from God, in both cases, repetition is what causes it to grow. So not just doing an act good once, but again and again and again. And we get not just a mechanical habit, but an inner disposition that is virtue. 
Okay, point two. Now, having said that as a kind of general statement, repetition causes virtue. Well, how? What is it about us that makes that happen? So, say first A, that human nature is in potency to form a habitus. There are many habituses. And I start with um, two analogies. And if you remember with an analogy, an analogy is never quite exact, but it does show us something. So, the human body has body tissue that is in potency to develop into muscles. So, exercising the body arm develops the biceps muscle. But the muscle was already in potency to become a big muscular bicep. I didn't kind of randomly throw the bicep on there. Um, but it needed action to stimulate it. Yeah, so that's one analogy. The, the body tissue is already waiting for action, repetition, to cause that. It's impotency to become that. And in a similar way, our whole existence is impotency to habituate into the different um, virtues. Second analogy, in the teen years onwards, the male body has increased testosterone. So I say grace is to the soul what testosterone is to the muscle, an added power to growth. Now I say in reality, however, there's always some testosterone there to be causing growth. And if we think back to the you know, distinction between natural and supernatural virtues acquired and infused, many scholars di dispute whether there are any truly natural virtues that are developed without grace. Have you been through those debates on acquired and natural virtues? So the notion of a natural virtue is you do it by your own human effort. Whereas an infused virtue comes from God. You don't do it by your effort. Um, now, if, in fact, we only ever do anything good by grace, how can we truly speak of doing something by our own human effort? So although the tradition makes this distinction between natural and supernatural virtues, acquired and infused, in reality, it's not quite as not quite as tidy to make that distinction. What's useful about the distinction is it shows us truly what a supernatural virtue is, namely that the real virtue is about union with God and having his help in infusion and grace. So the analogy I'm making there with testosterone is the teenage body gets this added boost of testosterone, a kind of added power so that that repetition in the teenager grows something more than that repetition in an eight-year-old would have done. Okay. And again, as I said, an analogy is a comparison, but it's not a literal description. Okay, then got a, a series of bullet points there were called potency to habitus, as in we exist in a state of potency to form various habituses. So, as I've mapped out on the top there, we have the natural inclinations in the human person to self-preservation, to sex and children, to truth, society, and God. Yeah, the threefold inclinations in the human person. We have the human appetite, rational, concupiscible, irascible. And these are more specific than the just general inclinations. Then more specific still, the passions, which responds to perceived goods or evils. And what this means is that altogether, the human person is a state in a state of potency to be habituated, to be inclined to more specific objects in virtues or vices. So all those things in me mean I just have a natural readiness to be formed into something specific to not just react to goodness in general, but to specific things that look good, to be habituated that 
um, that I always want M&Ms. I always want fudge brownie M&Ms. Um, I habituate myself by repetition to something particular. And that there's then created in me a steady, habitual inclination to seek that particular So, Sve so Pinkers, the Dominican who um, caused the, a large part of the revival of Thomistic moral theology in the late 20th century, he says, the inclinations in us are the seeds that blossom into the virtues. Then say, all the faculties of the human person therefore have a readiness to be shaped by reason. So, you know, we are rational beings. We want to not just act by instinct, but to form ourselves, shape ourselves by reason. By repeated acts, reason can shape the passions into habitus that resolve the various desires of the sense appetite and the will into stable dispositions. So how do I do that to myself? Well, my reason, my intellect, with my will, commanding myself to do various things in repetition, reason, therefore, forms my passions to have an automatic or semi-automatic movement towards those things I've chosen by my previous actions. Acts are what form us, and reason directs our acts. Thus, reason forms the habituses. In quoting St. Thomas, by repeated acts, a quality is formed in the passive or move power, and this quality is called a habitus. Typo there, it should be this, not thus. That will make sense as a kind of general trajectory of what we're talking about here in terms of the formation of, of a habit. As so a part of what we want to grasp in that is that this is just natural to us. But we need to, you know, the whole thing of potency and acts, you, you're not born in a state of acts, you're born in potency. You can become this great thing. This is the mechanism by which you do that. It was a late night last night, yeah. Okay, page 15. So how does that happen? So I've got two different mapping outs there of the trajectory by which a habitus is formed in us. So first, uh, B at the top of the page there. Now here I am um, mapping out what St. Thomas describes as um, the trajectory, in particular with respect to contemplative prayer. But this is one example of how we grow in a virtue. In particular, in this context, the most pivotal, highest virtue of love of God. And the most direct way to grow in love of God is contemplative prayer. Well, why? That's what's mapped out here. So, 2b, achieving the end of an act causes growth in the corresponding virtue. So, for example, contemplation fosters love. The will moves the intellect to contemplate a truth. The intellect then contemplates that truth. When the intellect grasps a truth, it experiences delight. And this delight is experienced in the will. And so the will increases in its love for the truth contemplated. This holds for all truth and all contemplation. This refers to contemplation in the broad sense, the intellect's simple grasp of an object. Give an example there. A married man 
carries a photo of his wife in his wallet, carries that around with him. Every time he opens his wallet to pay for something with his credit card, he glances on the photo and it gives him an immediate joy and an increase in his love for her. Yes, so he contemplates her in his intellect, experiences delight, the delight is in his will, therefore his will grows in this love he is delighted in contemplating. And I say this holds especially for God, since the delight is greater. Now the delight in God is not, St. Thomas talks about, as vehement as the delight in the pleasures of the flesh, but in itself it is a greater delight. Well, yes, that's exactly what I'd already written down there. Per se, spiritual pleasures are greater than sensible bodily pleasures, but the latter, the sensible bodily pleasures, are more vehement and felt more immediately. So before moving on to the next thing there, so repeating what I've just said, um, every action has an object it's aiming at. When it gets that end, that object, that achievement experiences a delight back in the will, which therefore habituates a tendency towards that object in the future. Okay, to see on that page. Um, now here I am paraphrasing, I meant to bring and show you the book. Um, so the book there, The Power of Habit, this is a secular book. Um, makes no reference to virtue or St. Thomas or the Catholic faith. Um, but interestingly, it maps out basically the same trajectory St. Thomas is talking about hundreds of years before him. Um, and this book is what's quoted. So you know the Augustine Way program that Father Brennan's doing with pretty much the entire house. Um, it roots itself in the methodology of growing in chastity in this book. So the dynamics of habit. Contemporary theories of habit formation essentially reinforce what St. Thomas said. So Charles Duhigg and the book, The Power of Habit, talks about what he calls the habit loop. Cue, routine, and reward. And he says this, he says, the brain is continually looking to save energy by forming shortcuts in habit routines. So in a habit routine, the brain isn't needing to rethink something. It's just saying, okay, I've done this before, into routine. The experience of a reward, and I'm making the comparison there with Thomas's analysis of delight and pleasure. The experience of a reward causes the brain to remember an activity it's just performed. So the first time the baby eats the M&Ms, it doesn't know what they're going to taste like. That's why babies are always tasting everything. Um, but when you taste something and it tastes good, you remember that that tasted good. Um, so you, there's a, you know, a very basic loop going on there. But that's the pattern with all these things. So the activity that was previously performed is remembered as a routine. And the cue is what the brain recalls as what started the activity that led to the reward. So Thomistically, in this way, habitus embeds reason, the brain, into the passions. Thus, to form a good habit, you need to give rewards for good behavior and identify cues that will trigger rewards and habits. So that's what Charles Duhigg in his book talks about. You want to get good habits? Well, you need to give yourself rewards that link with cues um, so that your brain will see something, have the cue, um, and start the right behavior. And to counter evil habits, we need to identify and avoid those cues that trigger evil routines and habits. Classically, avoid the occasions of sin. And this is what's used in the Augustan Way program here. 
Have you come across this before? Am I repeating? So, did you have your hand up? No, no, no. Sorry. But I came across it in my class of psychology. Okay. Okay, let's look over the page. So now I've got a little section here that I've called this page Training the Passions. And the key point I want to get to you on this page is that there's a difference from just having self-control and having that integration that is virtue. So I say, I ask the question, can we train the passions? Well, St. Thomas and the Catechism and post-medieval theology say, yes, we can. So point one, there's a notion of virtue that isn't St. Thomas that says virtues are mere self-control. So this is not the opinion of this course, what I'm teaching. So a kind of quasi-Kantian view of virtue sees virtue simply as being self-control. I want to do evil, but my will commands myself to do good. Yes, this is the German model of virtue. I have willpower. I will not do what I want to do. The man of virtue is the man who has strengthened his will to do the good. But the passions always are to be controlled, not followed. The passions are always my enemy in this model. I say in the now unfashionable and good Catholic circles, the view of Bonaventure in the medieval world said similarly, he said, virtues can be seated in the will and the intellect but he said virtues cannot be seated in the passions. Now what that means is the passions therefore cannot be trained, cannot be habituated. The passions are always a problem in that model. Yes, you're familiar with this as a concept of the self-control thing. Now, we need to contrast that with virtue, because that isn't an authentic, or it isn't a Thomistic understanding of virtue. So, second, virtues as integrating the passions. So, St. Thomas taught, virtues can be seated in the sensitive appetite, not just in the will and the intellect. The passions themselves can be formed so that their own, what he calls, proper act, direct us to the good. So what moves me to something good? Well, my intellect sees it, my will commands it, but according to St. Thomas, my passions independently can move me towards it. So that I see the right thing, and I'm not just overriding my passions, but I've trained my passions, so that even before I start thinking, my passions are moving me to the right thing. And this is what the catechism takes up. Um, so it teaches an anthropology of man having a sensitive appetite that results in passions. It teaches that the passions themselves move us to goods. So quoting the catechism, moral perfection consists in a man being moved to the good, not by his will alone, but also by his sensitive appetite. And passions are movements of the sensitive appetite that incline us to act or not to act in regard to something felt or imagined to be good or evil. And the Catechism teaches that the passions can be formed into virtues or vices. Emotions and feelings can be taken up into the virtues or perverted by the vices. So in short, the Catechism sides with St. Thomas and sides with him very decisively on this point. So in the reading of Grabowski, when he's talking about the need for integration, not just suppression of how you feel, um, this is St. Thomas, this is the Catechism. Okay, 
yet again, my examples revolve around food. Um, so breakfast example. Every day, I have exactly one half cup of oats. By repetition, repetition, I have had this amount daily. I form my passions to look at that portion size and think that's normal. Every morning, that's what I have. That just looks normal by repetition to me. So even without a measuring cup, so even when I don't have one of those bags from the ref where it's pre-measured for me, if I'm scooping it out for myself during the vacation in the kitchen upstairs, what looks a normal amount to me is that amount by repetition. So I feel satisfied when I've had that amount and eat that amount. So that's the routine. Well, what's the reward? Well, the reward would be the satisfaction that I get from breakfast, that I eat it and it feels enough. Um, and the cue would simply be I'm speculating, arriving in the refectory. Um, I get there, what is the routine I do when I get there? Ah, oh, I'm in this place, it's the morning, that's what I do. So I've then integrated, what have I integrated? I've integrated a measure made by my intellect, a decision in my will, and a movement in my passions that have become habituated to this measure by repetition. And so the key point here is this isn't just my will consistently overriding my passions every morning. So I do here, I walk past that crispy bacon there on the display, and there is a little trigger of something going on there as I pass the crispy bacon. But because every morning I'm walking past it, I kind of feel okay walking past it. I've habituated myself to feel okay walking past it. It's not just a heroic self-will. I will not. That um, this aspect of me, this bodily, spiritual aspect of me, my passions, I have trained, habituated to not have the crispy bacon. You're, you're saying self-control doesn't need to be seen as negative. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you're right. Um, certainly virtue would always have to start with just self-control. But Aristotle, when he talks about the man of virtue, he compares it to the man who is continent, i.e. in control of his passions. And he says this isn't the same thing. That just being in control of your passions isn't what Aristotle calls virtue. The virtue is when your passions are moving with you. Um, but you're right, so I I'm am I'm wanting to make that contrast, so I, I've, I've made self-control seem negative. It isn't just negative, but the point is it isn't integration. That according to St. Thomas, the Catechism, Aristotle, it's possible to have your passions working with you, 
not just to be fighting them every time. So the bad fighting, I would call it in a proper sense, separation or repression. To give it a Well, so psychologists will use terms like repression as a negative thing. So I either deny that that's really going on and repress it that way. So I'm kind of anything that's self, anything that isn't truth, that the self-denial that this is an aspect of me isn't going to be healthy. Um, but controlling and seeking to foster the right isn't the same thing as repressing. So I've not talked about here, but St. Thomas talks about how, so even in the short term, I can trigger a different passion within me by changing what I think about. I'm trying to think of this course or another course when I've been talking about this. So I look at the donut and it triggers something. But I look at the donut and I, my intellect tells my will, my will tells my intellect, remember the calories in there, remember the fat, remember how far you're going to have to go running around the grounds to burn that off. Um, all these things I think of in my intellect and it awakens a different passion suddenly the donut doesn't look quite so good to me anymore, even at the level of my passion. Which is different to just refusing and kind of trying to squash the passion. It's trying to form the passion. By thinking differently, I awaken, I trigger something. Catechism says that the great thing about this is that for the man of virtue, uh, doing good becomes easy and joyous because his passions are working with him. Whereas for the man who only has self-control, yes, self-control is a good thing. We should have control of ourselves. But he doesn't have the added benefit of his passions working with him, which is what happens in the man of virtue. Now, the example I've given there of breakfast, it's fairly easy to see how that works. Because actually, the oats, they're not that exciting, but they are pleasant to eat. Um, they do satisfy my stomach. The reward there is fairly easy to see how that will get processed by that triggering mechanism we've described. Next example over the page, page 17. So custody of, the, custody of the eyes. So you know this is one of the standard mechanisms we need if we're going to have chastity. Um, well, what's going on as a habit, as a practice in custody of the eyes? Well, in my intellect, I judge, you know, one of those beautiful young ladies runs around the grounds here with the shorts, yes, that we see from time to time. Well, I see that in the corner of my eye, and I judge, how should I respond now? I should avert my eyes, that that is the appropriate response to bare flesh. That's in my intellect, I, I judge that. In my will, I decide. I decide that this is what I will do when I see bare flesh. And the cue, the trigger, Seeing bare flesh in the corner of the eye, that's, that's going to be the cue. With the routine, averting my eyes, the problem is what's the reward here? Because the, the reward and the vice of the delight of seeing what I would see if I looked, um, that's a pretty obvious trigger 
to form the opposite habit. Well, the Augustine way notes as a reward the spiritual satisfaction of knowing that I've avoided sin and the lack of evil satisfaction in the contrary habit. And I note that the more restraining nature of this reward does make it harder to utilise. So it's a very supernatural reward. It's not an immediate reward. It doesn't have the, the vehemence St. Thomas talked about. Um, but it is a real reward. And if in contemplation and prayer, I am learning, reminding myself, growing in my desire to do the things of God, my desire to do the right things, then that can become a cue that actually kind of reward rather that means something to me, to delight in knowing I've done the right thing. So, by repetition, by repetition I habituate my passions to not think that this is odd and heroic, um, to increasingly not resist my will and eventually to spontaneously look away. And again, this isn't just my will consistently overriding my passions every time, but training my passions to have that reaction. Yeah, go on. Um, I just wanted to also to go up to your example here. The, uh, the idea of averting my eyes, it seems to me that Yes, the, the, what you have said is there for a fresh. But in most cases, when you, we are in a group, in society, or in a place where women will show up half dressed, mm -hmm. almost, almost bare, and they are over the place. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to just look like you don't want to see, to look at them. Stare at the ground on stage. <laughs> 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 so, because that starts to seem to me that you're fighting something. Uh, that instead of like going back to the integration talked about, okay, I see this woman, I appreciate the beauty, but then I'm not driven into lust, but I can appreciate the beauty before me. Yes, my passions, I have, as a man, I have a desire for this woman, but I simply appreciate the beauty there. But when we when you talk of, okay, I have successfully avoided looking at that, therefore, I've not seen, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Yeah, this is only one example I've given, and averting eyes is only one of the mechanisms, one of the habits. Um, another good habit is to actually look a woman in the eyes. So she's turned up in front of me, you know, covered down to here, and you know, the, the, the amount I can see is a lot. But what I look at is I look her in the face, I look her in the eyes, I engage with her as a person, not just eye her up the same way I would a nice looking steak in the butcher's shop, that there's a nice piece of meat there. Um, so that would be a different cue, a different response. So I think there are a number of different cues, routines that we need in different contexts. Um, I think the beautiful young lady who runs around the ground, I think in that context, the only thing appropriate is for me to be averting my eyes. But yeah, I, I take your general point. Okay, I'm going to Quickly run through this next little section here. 
the passions, knowing the good and spontaneously recognizing it. So, as a result of training, i.e. repetition, the passions spontaneously recognize the good, i.e. the good in a specific concrete context. Each good needs specific training, specific forming. Each virtue has, as St. Thomas puts it, its own specific object. And what virtue does is it enables a semi-automatic recognition of good deeds as opposed to evil deeds. I, less reflection is needed to realize what's right and what's wrong. Um, and then I quote from the Catechism. Jacob, would you mind reading that? So this is interesting, the Catechism, which is referring us back to Aristotle. There are two ways of judging. A man may judge in one way by inclination, as whoever has the habit of a virtue judges rightly of what concerns that virtue by his very inclination towards it. Hence, it is the virtuous man, as we read in Aristotle, who is the measure and rule of human acts. In another way, by knowledge, just as a man learned in moral science might be able to judge rightly about virtuous acts, though he had not the virtue. And actually, that was St. Thomas, not the Catechism. The next quotes from the Catechism. Um, so that, you, yes, you can judge rightly in your intellect, but you can judge by inclination if you've trained yourself to have that inclination and you just spontaneously make that judgment when you arrive in that situation. So that by your emotions, Catechism says, you intuit the good and suspect evil, and by repetition, the judgment of the intellect becomes spont a spontaneous intuition of the passions. Okay, let's look at the reading material um, on to Grabowski. Um, 